A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What have you want? I'd like to stay alive. I'd say it to you, face. I'll say it to you now. I'm down to one field. What you doing down here, you Johnny man? Hello, welcome to today's Irish Times second captain's football podcast. Owen and Ken here. Hi, Owen. How are you? I'm very good, Ken, and I'll tell you why. Oh yeah. There are very, very few certainties in life. They say, Ken, and also in football. Okay. Which is what makes it so reassuring. That every Monday morning, without fail, from March through to December, if you spend more than five minutes on the internet, you will be treated to a feast of goals scored for the LA Galaxy by this absolute hero. Yes, Robbie, Robbie, Kino is out again. LA Galaxy versus New York City FC. Build as Gerard versus Lampard. I don't get it. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was Gerard Lampard. Gerard Oof. saying every time, every time we play against against each other, it's war. Well, Lampard was AWOL again. Well, you know, he did actually have leave. He was injured, <laughs> so he couldn't play. Okay. Uh, Gerard did play. Lampard didn't play. But who cares? Again, that's not what it's about. It's all about Robbie. Two goals and two assists in a stomping five-one victory. And what I like about it is, I don't know if this has been going on for a long time or not. But Robbie now celebrates, his goal celebrations are just the right side of obnoxious, which is, <laughs> which is to say very obnoxious. Where is the line there? <laughs> but it's somewhere in the puffing of the cheeks. You know, the, you cross a line as the cheeks are being puffed out and the arms are held aloft in that really stationary position that he, yeah. that, and very, it's a very masculine type of pose that he takes. He, he, he definitely juts the groin forward. Oh, he seriously juts the groin yeah, forward. he definitely does. He now has taken to celebrating assists in a similar manner. He whipped it, <laughs> whipped it across for one of his teammates early on and wheeled away in obnoxious celebration. I saw this on, and it literally is as though he had scored the goal. Mm-hmm. They have to come and celebrate with him. <laughs> but I suppose, you know, he's just doing what, um, you know, Thierry Henry would have looked at it and said, absolutely, you know. I can't remember who scored the goal, who headed in the ball. Was it... Uh, Zardas, the, the striker, uh, his strike partner, I think, scored the header from the cross. But as Thierry Henry would have told, uh, told Chicharito Hernandez, you know, don't forget the king. You've got to go and celebrate with the man who effectively scored that goal, uh, whether it be Cristiano Ronaldo or Robbie Keane. Although in Thierry Henry's world, that is essentially you have to go and celebrate with the alpha male. 
mm. the top dog of the dressing room. Whatever he's, whether he's scored or created, I think you just go. You, you have to know which side your bread's buttered on. There. Well, and it's complicated at Oxy now, isn't it? Because, I mean, Stephen Gerrard's just arrived in, and uh, according to the BBC, it's uh, Stephen Gerrard's LA Galaxy uh, destroys New York. <laughs> and I thought that's not what happened. No, he's involved in one of the goals, maybe. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess Robbie Keane probably is the top man. I mean, I just think he's probably a lot more talkative in those team environments than Stephen Gerrard, uh, somewhat brooding figure that he is. I mean, I wonder is the MLS, is some, is the MLS I've just said, is Major League Soccer, MLS, at uh, some kind of tipping point at the moment yeah, where I suppose it's probably the influence of the, these matches are being shown on TV here, which, which wasn't happening previously to the same extent. Um, I see Cristiano Ronaldo uh, heads up at the moment the Daily Mail's sports, um, uh, sports site, mm-hmm. uh, having bought a, an apartment in Trump Tower in New York for $18.5 million. I mean, you always have to be suspicious when you see something like that. You're like, did Ronaldo buy this apartment? Why? Why are these names being linked? Is Donald Trump... It's, it's, it's just hard to know. The apartment, I have to say, didn't actually look all that good. Didn't look like an $18.5 million apartment to you? There was, well, you know it's an $18.5 million apartment because all you need to do is look out the window and you can see that you're many, many stories into the air and the view is of Central Park. So you know straight away that this is an expensive apartment. But I have to say, when I looked around at the photos, I thought maybe this place is trying a bit too hard. <laughs> maybe it's just trying a little too hard. Um, but, you know, uh, I don't know why Ronaldo would spend so much money on an apartment in New York, if indeed he has. Um, maybe he's thinking about going to uh, try and drink a little bit of Robbie Keane's milkshake. Well, good luck to him, <laughs> is all I can say, because, you know, others have tried and failed. Uh, Robbie Keane has been in that league for a long time. He knows that league uh, better than anyone. He's almost like a an outdoorsman, you know, a Davy Crockett, uh, a real American hero now. And, of course, Ronaldo could come over and expect to immediately be running the show. Uh, and I'm sure there'd be many people who would expect it to turn out that way too. But as long as Robbie Keane's in that league, I don't, I don't think any other dog is going to have an, an easy run of being the alpha dog. Thankfully, Stephen Gerrard can shares your view, judging by these post-match comments. Yeah. Everyone in this dressing room is desperate for Robbie to go on and achieve the MVP again. We all have responsibilities to keep serving him and keep providing goals, uh, goals and chances for him, and we are certainly doing that. Wow. So Gerard knows who the top dog is, no doubt about that. Surely he should be striving to be the MVP of that league. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I, I would have thought that would that would have been among the the goals. I mean, why not? He's done it a couple of times in the in his old league, been the MVP. So uh, he's taken a very definite sort of domestique role. You know, he's like, okay, the, Robbie's the Chris Froome here. Yeah. I mean, sure, I'm I'm pretty talented. I could probably win the Tour de France myself, but for the time being, I have to bide my time yeah. and keep serving. Well, it's Rooney. just a privilege. It's just a privilege, really, to be on the same team as this guy. Yeah, you know, uh, maybe this is the what Stephen Jarrett has been <laughs> aching to do his whole career just just take a back seat role and sort of serve, be one of the lads. That's all he's actually ever wanted. The whole captaincy thing was a mistake. Um, I don't know. Maybe a subject for another. Another show, another day. Let's get through more. Oh God! So where are we? Um, well, I'm looking at Ronaldo's apartment now that you mentioned. Oh yeah, it's it's a bit. It's a bit overdone, isn't it? I, I mean, I kind of feel if I was in there, I'd really feel the need to escape. You know? I'm like, oh God, I need to get out of here. I mean, it's uh, inspired the setting for Fifty Shades of Grey. So, so the uh, the blurb is saying. I mean, I don't understand how that works. How did this apartment inspire Fifty Shades of Grey? It's just an apartment. 
I mean, what have inspired the setting for? Have you had to I've seen the movie. I've seen the movie. The show's great. And I tell you, Christian Grey's place in, I guess it's is it Seattle or Vancouver? It's one of those types of places. It's nothing like that apartment. Uh, he does like a bit of grey, it's true. Uh, it's to do with his name, I think. Mm-hmm. So he likes grey stuff, you know, stuff in different shades of grey. Um, but generally speaking, you're talking about also a lot of white walls, high ceilings. Not great carpets, sort of red and white carpets and not... Not doing it for me particularly. Now, I, I, that place looks a bit like the seven and a half, the seven and a half floor in being John Magwitch. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, do, really, do people live in this? You know, maybe being up that high compresses. I, I, I don't really know. But look, it's um, it looks as though Ronaldo might be planning to move to New York at some point, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and why not? I mean, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, uh, but at some point. Um, I just hope that uh, property prices in, in New York haven't collapsed. Uh, I mean, apparently on the global stock market is collapsing as we speak. Oh, yeah. Hope everything works out for the global stock market. <laughs> I think it's, in all, our, it's in all our interests. I think we're all... Well, is it? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure what to think about it anymore. It just seems to keep doing this. I, I keep wondering if maybe there could... Maybe there, there isn't a better way to... Anyway, we better not uh, waste too much time talking about such... Trifles. When we have the um, Pedro uh, to talk about, Pedro, the man who arrived uh, in English football last week and immediately uh, made an impact uh, away to West Brom, a classic uh, English football experience was had by Pedro as the rain pelted down uh, as he ran out of the Hawthorns, uh, immediately scored a goal, uh, a little scuffy goal that was deflected, albeit uh, still a, a you know decent uh, decent effort. Then set up a goal, albeit a shot, which which was you know hammered into that by Diego Costa. Still though, he's out there, mm-hmm. he's being positive, he's making an impact. Um, Manchester United, of course, were supposed to have been interested in signing. We will talk a bit to John Bruin about this later on. Just what happened? Because if you remember, we were talking to John last week, and he was fairly confident. Then I, I think this where most of the people, most of the uh, guys who are covering United a lot, were quite confident that Pedro was going to end up there. Something obviously changed. And nobody is there are conflicting explanations as to what it was. Um, but just looking at Rooney, I mean, Rooney didn't again make any impact. Uh, this is a number of bad games in a row. I mean, he hasn't scored for 858 minutes, which is a long time, mm. really is a long, like, I mean, a long, uh, a long time. Um, but just as comparing the two players, and it struck me, it's quite, it's quite amazing to think that Rooney is 29, Pedro 28. And Rooney, how many more games has Rooney played than Pedro, do you think? Um, 80? 300, Owen. <laughs> Almost 300 games. Uh, it's like 280-something. You look at their, um, uh, obviously, club performances, and if you add on internationals, Rooney's played 105 internationals. Mm-hmm. Pedro, only, I think, about half that. And... Uh, it's pretty amazing. Okay, it's maybe misleading to say Rooney's 29 and Pedro's 28, although they are. Rooney will be 30 in October and Pedro isn't 29 until next July, I think. So, you know, there's maybe an easy year and nine months. But he did start playing um, first-team football in 2002, whereas Pedro waited more or less until 2008. And, I mean, so I tweeted this last night, whereupon Jiffington... Uh, who describes himself as the 61st most creative person in Ireland right now, tweeted me back to, to uh, point out 
that if you actually look at the minutes they've played in league football, um, Rooney has played like two and a half times more in his career than Pedro. 30,414 minutes in league football compared to 12,311 for Pedro. It's, it's unbelievable difference. I mean, Rooney's, you could fit Pedro's league football career two and a half times into Rooney's. That's the difference between these guys. I mean, you can say a lot of things about that. I mean, when I tweeted that, a lot of people were saying, oh, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to say? And I just, you said, don't look at me. This is all Jiffington's work. <laughs> just, well, I didn't, I, I didn't actually retweet Jiffington because at first I thought, no, nah, he has to be making that Jiffington's up. Jiffington's gone, gone nuts again, you were thinking. Then I got in touch and it turns out he had, um, no, he hadn't, he hadn't just, just uh, pulled it out of. Although he is creative. Well, 61st most creative person in Ireland, reasonably creative <laughs> uh, at this time. But look, um, you know, what, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to say? Rooney hasn't won anything in his career, or Rooney hasn't won anywhere near as much as Pedro, or Pedro hasn't achieved anything more as much as, you know, these, both of these opinions were, were stated, you know. It's true Pedro has more trophies than Rooney, although maybe Rooney's had more to do with the trophies his teams have won than Pedro. Maybe he's been a more central player to the, the when the times that his team has won trophies as compared to yeah. Pedro, um, but yeah, I mean it's I don't know what it means. I don't I honestly don't know what it means. It means Rooney was a lot better than Pedro at a younger age. That's not in for dispute. I think it means Rooney is a lot likelier to have a short shelf life. We were talking about this last week. That even though he's only twenty nine, it's roughly the equivalent to thirty three year old who started playing at twenty one, mm. or actually who started playing at nineteen twenty. Yeah, because Rooney was so uh, at such a high level from such a young age. So look, you know, we, we'll we'll see if Manchester United are going to sign something. I think they do need to actually. I mean, I was looking at the the game uh, against Newcastle, and Newcastle started the game playing in an almost insanely open uh, defensive system. You know, I mean, it, it's a kind of it's a positive way of, of playing when you get the, when your goalkeeper has the ball, your central defenders split uh, to the sidelines. You know, everyone pushes up. Uh, and it's a good way to sort of start the passing going, bring the ball. Maybe it's not the way to play at Old Trafford in the first few minutes of the game. Mm. I think, I mean, uh, I, I mean, because you had this situation where Rooney was standing in the middle, completely unmarked. You know, the, the defenders uh, are, are 15 yards either side of him, and he's just kind of going, all right, if we win the ball, I'm in a good position to get the pass here. And, in, and indeed, that is what happened. Rooney got the ball in, in that position. The defenders are too far away. They're kind of converging on him, but don't get close enough to stop him scoring. Luckily for Newcastle, the linesman rules him offside, uh, a decision that was so close that I think everyone watching the match at the time thought it was a wrong decision. Van Hal certainly thought it was the wrong decision afterwards. It was only later when BT Sports sort of manipulated everything, you know, showed you in 3D, spun the whole thing around. You could see Rooney was fractionally offside, but, you know... It wasn't. A, it was a. It could easily have gone the other way, and then Newcastle probably would have lost the game heavily. As it was, they ended up nil nil. Um, but you know, you're, you're looking at this United team and thinking, is this is this seriously what they're going to go with? It's it's not really enough. I mean, it's not to say that Mata, uh, Memphis, and Yanazai aren't good players because they are. But you know, a team uh, with the kind of money that Manchester United have, which, which is just a big team. Yeah, they're clearly banking on a superstar, though. That's uh, I know there's a Latin link at the moment. We'll talk uh, to John about some of these later on. Um, supposedly this story that actually he was in town. Ed Woodward was in Barcelona to see Neymar to try to get a future deal done there. T- the, mm-hmm. the Thomas Muller one won't go away. It strikes me that they're definitely bidding. You would think that there's, there's a lot of money sloshing around there. 
Mm. It'd be, it would be probably stupid of them not to go for these massive name players, but that's always high risk if you're relying on one absolute world megastar to arrive in. Is it is it high risk? It's hard to say. Well, it's high I mean, risk if, if they don't get the, the signing. Though. It's it's. I mean, say because this is this is what Real Madrid have been doing for years. So oh no, I'm not saying it's high risk if it, you succeed. I'm saying yeah. if your policy is based on not you know filling out the positions be, be everywhere up to up front essentially, then deciding right, we're going to get one complete superstar here. Yeah. And if you don't get that superstar, I'm saying you're in a pretty bad way, which is how United look at the moment. Now, we could all look pretty stupid in a couple of days' time if they sign Zlatan or whoever it might be, mm. uh, and then they've got the job done. Zlatan, we, will, we might uh, see what John Bruno has to say about that. I mean, a man who has called Levan Hall a pompous ass in the past. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, big deal. He was actually asked about this recently. And the thing about Zlatan is that supposedly he's, um, you know, Paris Saint-Germain have said, you can go, Zlatan, if you want to go. Already? seems as though Paris... Uh, I mean, he, he's a guy who's moved around quite a lot in his career. Maybe the Paris relationship isn't as good as it was. Uh, and they've said he can go. I mean, to me... Look, we'll, we'll talk about it later. In the meantime, let's talk about uh, P- Tony Pulis. Uh, Tony Pulis did another interview. He does good, interesting, interesting interviews, I think, Tony Pulis. I like uh, reading... Uh, I like reading his stuff, you know, when he, when he talks. It was overhauled on this occasion. Um, he was speaking to him. And Tony Pulis revisited a team that he returns to a lot in interviews. I do like Napoleon, he says. Uh, he's fascinated by leadership. He says that if he could invite four people to a dinner party, it would be his parents. Because I've lost my parents, he says, and they could also reassure me that there is a God up there waiting for us. Napoleon and Winston Churchill. That would be the guest list for Tony Pulis's dinner party. Um However, he says that while he admires both Churchill and Napoleon, he can relate more to Napoleon. Uh, the reason being that um, that Tony Pulis is one of six children born to a steel worker from Newport, um, whereas Winston Churchill was born in, I think, Blenheim Palace. Uh, you know, as as uh, as posh as as posh gets. You know, he was a a proper aristocrat, an establishment man. Uh, Napoleon as everyone knows, was a, you know, an Italian ragamuffin from nowhere who wasn't even French. Um, he, uh, who then rose up uh, from, from practically nowhere to become, you know, emperor. Uh, and Tony Pulis can relate to that more because, you know, you're not talking about a guy who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. But he says, um, you know, uh, anything to do with people who have been involved in leading men or taking charge and running things just sparks a bit of a fire in me. I try and glean something from how they treated the people who worked for them and died for them. That's important. Uh, talks a bit about Napoleon's military strategy. Uh, he was very close to the battlefield early in his career, especially in the initial battles where he had to win favour with the soldiers. He was at the front. You can see how he built up his reputation and how the soldiers admired him because he was actually one of them. The greater he became, the more detached he was from that front line. But he was still controlling it and he controlled it in a wonderful way. I don't know about this. I don't know. I think Tony Pulis is is engaged in a bit of soppy... Hero worship here mm. of a historical figure who appears to have been whitewashed somewhat in Tony Pulis's mind. I mean, he goes on to tell Oliver Holt uh, the, how, how proud he is of the of the label old school when people describe him as an old school manager. Because he says old school means good traditions, dis- discipline and respect. We've moved away from that a little bit and I don't think we should have done as a nation. Uh, and talks about how he respects the players and hopes the players respect me, which strikes me as being a little hard to square with his admiration for Napoleon 
a man who didn't really stand for good traditions, discipline and respect, so much as tearing down the entire existing social order, um, invading every country in Europe and massacring untold hundreds of thousands of people in the service of an insane personal ambition. Didn't Alex Ferguson have a thing about Napoleon? Uh, Napoleon, uh, Ferguson rather, loved essentially every um, tyrant in every sphere. I mean... I think there's like a little room in his house dedicated that's to, right. specifically to books on tyrants. Yeah, he, he had a tyrant section and, uh, you know, uh, Joseph Stalin, you know, a, f- a figure of fascination to Alex Ferguson. Um, fascination, because you, know, you probably can't really legitimately use the word admiration. So well, I I'm, mean, I'm fascinated by this character. I, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe you can't use that word admiration. I mean, it's a difficult one. Uh, apparently, it's okay to admire Napoleon who, you know, was in his own time known as the enemy of, of mankind. But now a lot of time has passed, a lot of water's gone under the bridge. No one really remembers all of the, you know, you know, Europe in flames and, you know, all the people who had to die. And uh, I suppose people give him a lot of credit for having, uh, t- you know, tactically, tactically, he was sound. You know, that seems to be what Tony Peters is saying. Although then again, how, you know, it's hard to, it's hard, it's hard to know. But I mean, if, if he does have a lot of respect for Napoleon, and he clearly does, I mean, and, and it's, it's an interesting thing with Peters because he doesn't, would, he's a kind of, like he says, he describes himself as an old school figure. And he seems like a, a pragmatic kind of a man. I mean, I remember, he, he, you know, he's, he's kind of allergic to, allergic to bullshit is how you might describe Tony Peters. I mean, one of the things I remember about him, uh, I was at the game between Stoke and when Pulis was manager Stoke, Stoke and Chelsea in the the first game of the 2011-2012 season up at Stoke, a nil-nil draw if I remember correctly, pretty boring game. Uh, Andre Villas-Boas' first game as Chelsea manager, Tony Pulis, a big turnout at Stoke that day from the media. Uh, Tony Pulis came in, you know he wears like a. Uh, tracksuit and cap and all that in the sideline but then he changes into a suit to do the press conference because I don't know I mean maybe he he obviously feels that the clothes are make it the man or whatever you know what's appropriate on the sideline isn't necessarily appropriate when you go in to talk to these you know people Um, I I always wondered if he showered or if he just threw the suit on or if the suit was on under the tracksuit you'd have to have a quick shower it sort of defeats the purpose of wearing a suit if you feel a little grubby and dirty. Yeah, it does. You, you don't want to put on a suit after you've been raging, ranting and raving on the sideline for two hours, probably sweating. It's a hot day, August, you know, wearing that shell suit, tracksuit top, you know, probably sweating a bit. Yeah. I would, uh, Quick but, share. But Pulis is, is not a guy who has, uh, he, he, for instance, he didn't have hair like Andre Villas-Boas. Andre Villas-Boas's hair would have to be dried. <laughs> Tony Pulis just wiped a towel over the head and then he'd be ready to, he'd be ready to go. But he came in and he had, he had his hands buried in his pockets of his suit trousers, and he was kind of looking at all the he was you know looking at all these people who turned up, right? And he he knows exactly how many people usually turn up uh, on on match day at the Britannia, and it's more than that, more than that number. So he's uh, he ans- he doesn't sit down. I've seen him seen him at a few press conferences. And he comes in like he he kind of loiters by the door, hands in his pockets, not sitting down because he doesn't want to give the impression he's hanging around. Then after he talked for literally ninety seconds, he said, "I suppose these are all here to see the other guy." Well, you know, see you later, <laughs> and just walked out. And then Villas-Boas came in and sat down and uh, talked at length about everything. Talked at extreme length uh, about all. But that's Tony Pulis. You know what I mean? He's not a he's not a bullshitter. He's a footballer. But I think I actually think Tony Pulis is actually the most raging romantic in all of English football. He loves 
the past. He loves an imaginary past. He loves the kind of football that he plays is is manly football. You know, it's the it's the football of a man who he he, he told Oliver Holt in this thing that he, he you know what he did after the West Brom finished the season the, the day after they finished the season. What was Tony Pulis doing? Oh, ah, can't remember. What what kind of thing would it have been even? Well, he should be, you should be relaxing and holidaying. But he was presumably at the ground at the stadium. Oh no, he wasn't at the stadium. No, oh. God, no, he was he was holidaying. But oh. his his holiday took the form of uh, rowing from Tower Bridge to I don't know somewhere in the middle of Paris. Uh, oh no, they didn't realize. No, this is I don't know what I was thinking of. Yeah, he he got on a he got on a rowboat uh, with a bunch of other lads, like minded people. And rode from London to Paris, uh, seven days, two two hours on, two hours off. It took me out of my comfort zone. <laughs> he said that was that was how he chose to relax. I actually think that he's a he's an incredibly romantic man, and uh, the thing that attracts him to Napoleon is the same thing that attracts everybody to Napoleon who is attracted to Napoleon. Is this idea of him as possessing the spark of divine fire? The kind of the G, this this Gallic flair, you could say, uh, which he had that you know other people didn't have, um, and if uh, so, it's kind of no wonder that he seems to love Jose Mourinho so much as well. Jose Mourinho is the most Napoleonic figure um, in in football, hands down. I mean, he's got basically the same sort of storyline. You know, he's a kind of a, an outsider from peripheral country, you know, who just has brilliant success after brilliant success. But, you know, as things, as time goes on, you know, things start to, look, it's hard to, if getting to the top is hard, staying there is even harder on. Um, they, anyway, they, uh, on this occasion, Mourinho, for once, manages to get the better of Pulis, who had beaten him twice. Um, never, uh, that, that was, they played twice, and Tony Pulis had won both. 3-2, uh, though, after West Brom missed a penalty and so on. Um, so it was a good. It was a good for Chelsea, I suppose, to eventually get a win. Although a particularly bad sending off for John Terry, who was already, I think, a little bit worried about his place, and uh, loses it now again, at least for one game at an awkward moment in the season. Mourinho returns that admiration for Pulis. Well, he, I mean, he he calls him only Tony. I mean, I wonder what it's how long it's going to be before he starts using a pet name for him because it's just it's it's unbelievable what's going on between these guys. You know, just this. The, the, I mean, I think it's it's obviously more on Mourinho's side. You know, Mourinho was clasping Pulis in his in his arms, and and Pulis is kind of like, I mean, he's happy to. Uh, first of all, I can see that his his arms are up in a slightly defensive position. He's not really returning the hug so much as slightly trying to fend Jose Mourinho off, and his head is also beginning to angle to incline away from Mourinho, uh, who seems to be really kind of in there to nuzzle to nuzzle Pulis. You know what I mean? Like that's. That is the connection between these two these two men. Two men with similar outlooks on the game. You know? No nonsense. No nonsense football. Absolutely. Well, Mourinho would like us to think that. Um, but there you go. Uh, that was what... Uh, that was Sunday's game. Uh, Monday's game is a big one. Uh, Monday's game is uh, Arsenal against Liverpool. It is interesting um, because we don't really know yet. This, this is a game which is going to tell... which is going to really condition, I think, how things are going to turn out this season for both teams. You know, a win for Liverpool, who've been terrible in recent years away to Arsenal. I mean, 4-1, 4-1 thrashing being the most recent uh, game there. Would 
you know, be a huge psychological boost to them. Uh, I would expect though Arsenal are going to going to go and win. But, you know, again, if they fail to win, and just a draw for Arsenal, I think, would be a massively disappointing result. Four points from three games is not a good start to the season. Um, uh, Arsene Wenger says he was being asked about Raheem Sterling. Um, and they were kind of saying, oh, Sterling caused a lot of problems, didn't he? You know, he caused a lot of problems. And, and he said, actually, I don't think he really did, which was a strange one. I suppose Arsene Wenger has been used to this a little bit from a lot of his players over the years. Um, Fabregas, Nasri, Van Persie all these really important players to him uh, deciding that they you know they were stagnating <laughs> it's, it, I mean it hurts it's not an easy thing to it's not an easy thing to be told by you know one of what you would hope to be your uh, the rock on which you would build your church but you know sorry I just can't stay here anymore I feel like my career is just stagnating so you're saying he's conditioned to Dealing with those situations on an almost annual basis, therefore, probably didn't see the sterling. He can see it. He can see the player's point of view. What Arsene Wenger respects talent, uh, and just the fact that Sterling is such a good player, in his opinion, is kind of gets him off a lot. I think. Well, he said, um, he said essentially that uh, he didn't think that Sterling was made too much drama. I mean, maybe the, the implication there is that the agent was the one making the drama. It wasn't really the player. Don't don't say that the players. You know, back. Sterling incidentally set up a goal. With a great piece of play for Kolarov, Man City beat Everton. I mean, Man City are looking, you know, after three games, everyone's like, oh, right, okay. So <laughs> about these guys? Obviously, they're going to win. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> obviously, they're going to win the league. Yeah. But um, what uh, Wenger said was, let's remember two years ago with Suarez, Sturridge and Sterling, they scored over 100 goals. To score more than 100 goals in the Premier League, you need special quality to do that. And Sterling was a part of that. I personally rate him. We'll see that in the longer term. He is a quality player. But they bought Firmino. We'll see what he'll produce. He is a similar player. Um, suggestions are that Firmino will actually start tonight. Right. Uh, for the, he hasn't been he has been sitting on the bench quite a lot and uh, hasn't really got going yet. But he did come back a bit late into the preseason as a result of the Copa America. So um, maybe we'll see him from the start tonight. One more quick one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I always feel a little reluctant sometimes mentioning these stories, which have kind of gone viral because I kind of feel like maybe everyone will have already seen the story. But, you know, it's an interesting one to look at. Uh, Jermaine Defoe and family, uh, Defoe Enterprise, personal assistant. Uh, Jermaine Defoe uh, apparently has posted an ad, or maybe someone on his behalf mm-hmm. has posted an ad um, for an executive personal assistant. Um, we are looking for a highly experienced executive personal assistant who will be working closely with senior manager of Defoe Enterprise Limited. Um Working for a high-profile individual within the sports industry, the candidate must, by nature, be very flexible, hands-on, and be capable of multitasking. <laughs> I mean, those, it's an ominous sentence, really. If you, in, the, in the language, in the sometimes bland language of job adverts, mm-hmm. that sentence means you're going to have to do a lot of work. On a day-to-day basis, you will be involved in scheduling and highly organizing the managers and the families, private, social, and business calendars. It is a heavy, heavy duty task. Arranging all public appearances, arranging and securing travel arrangements, working on selected business projects, and maintaining daily itineraries. Must be able to supervise a multi-portfolio of houses, managing all household staff and contractors, dealing with all incoming bills and more. So this is the CEO of a mid-sized company here. It's unbelievable, isn't it? So this is a whole list of things that you've got to do uh, just to be considered for an interview. Then um, responsibilities, diary management for Sandra and Jermaine, data management, dealing with incoming email, faxes, posts, drafting emails, uh, answering calls, 
create database of all business contacts, produce daily, weekly briefs via email, writing minutes, take dictations, prepare presentations, arrange travel and accommodation for Germain, work on certain projects, <laughs> carry out research, liaison with sponsors, brief directors, managers before meetings and appearances, travel with Germain and Sandra on business meetings, UK, international when required, occasional travel alone for business meetings, setting up business meetings, organizing management of databases, errands, organize all Germain's personal needs, i.e. dry cleaners, gardeners, house refurbishments, sourcing interior designers, everyday tasks, regularly checking the home and Jermaine's away, making sure all's in place for his return, i.e. fridges stocked, plants watered, house clean. Select and organize wardrobe with specific designers for special events, i.e. Oswald Boateng, Harrods, Zap, etc. Organize the Defoe family's household and needs, organizing cleaners, food shopping, organizing gardeners, domestic cleaners, security, Book all social events, theatre, concerts, cinema, musicals, restaurant bookings, spa days, family outings, planning yearly events, managing and organising individual family members, Sandra, Andre, Chante and Chase, family pets, dealing with the domestic running of all the faux family properties, including international. And that's, I'm, I mean, I can continue reading for another um, 90 seconds here. I like the way he takes such a hands-off approach to His life. entire life? Yeah, just hands-off. That's the thing I'm worried about. What's left for Jermaine Defoe to do here? Well, he has to, I presume he has to, when the, it said the wardrobe was chosen, I presume he dresses himself once the wardrobe was chosen. Maybe that's, not. That's the thing, because I thought, I thought, okay, well, look, what's so, when I, when I saw this originally, I was like, well, what's so strange about that? You know, Jermaine Defoe is a wealthy guy. You know, he's like a, he's like a little prince. You know what I mean? You know, in the 19th century, he would have had a, he would have had servants. He would have had a valet. You know, he would have had people doing all this stuff for him. And now, He's a guy, he's got a ton of money, he wants to get someone to basically be his, his manservant, mm-hmm. you know? But then I was reading it, and I was thinking, well, hang on a second, this is, this is actually way beyond the, ta- the, the, the responsibilities of any manservant. I mean, at least if he was, if he was some old-school aristocrat, he would be deciding his own social engagement. He would decide, well, where, do, where will I go this evening? You know, who, who would I call on? Which club will I go to? You know where where will I where do I fancy a restaurant? They're, they're the kind of decisions that you take on on your own because otherwise you literally have nothing left to think about but the meaning of life, and that's not something anyone wants. I mean, I think he needs to claw back some of these responsibilities. And in the meantime, I think this person is going to be taking on too much. He needs two people, three people maybe for this job. How much do you think he's offering for the job? Oh well, I was I guess pretty badly on that chef. Who's who? who what, John what Joe Shelby's he? chef. Yeah, I guess badly on that one. Well, so I, Shelby I was offering sixty to sixty-five grand, and all he had to do was cook. Well, this guy's got to be getting a hundred grand a year. Fifty to fifty-nine grand. Now that is sterling, on. Hmm. That is sterling. But on the other hand, you probably do have to live in the, you know, central or greater London area. So. <laughs> Unless there's a living allowance, which isn't mentioned here. Uh, that's not necessarily the biggest money. That's it for Kennedy's report on sport. Stop it! It's one of those things. Stop it! How many players can do this? Duffman can never die. He's 34 years old. It's one of those things. Duffman can never die. Only the actors who play him. No, he did. No, he did. Do you think Robbie Keane just said, you know what? Any questions about me being the MVP of this league? I think he just said right there. Oh, yeah. He's got more of a tandem, Abel. Right, we're joined by Jacob Steinberg now to talk from the Guardian to talk about West Ham and in particular their manager, Jacob Slavin Bilic, who's taken over in the last. 
uh, taking over this season. The West Ham fans for a long time wanted Sam Allardyce out of there pretty much from as soon as he, he walked in the door. In some cases, they've now got what they wanted, a cult hero from their past, from their playing past in Savin Village, but a couple of disastrous results in the last couple of games. If you were a West Ham supporter, how, would you be worried? I'd be extremely concerned by the way West Ham have played in the last two games. I think that I think it's fair to say that they never played that badly under Allardyce. And they were certainly never that disorganised. And you never saw those kind of errors made on such a regular basis. The, 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 the ones that led to the goals um, against Bournemouth on on Saturday, all four goals were really down to individual errors, which kind of papers over the fact that the entire team was, was making errors. It wasn't just... I think it's sometimes easy to to sort of think... Oh, it's bad luck because you made a few individual errors that, that led to goals and you can kind of brush it aside and, and think that everything is really okay. But it was more systematic and collective than that. I think it's more a sign that the team wasn't set up right and it was much the same as it had been against Leicester where they were extremely narrow and the fullbacks were completely exposed against two wingers. Um, so I think that I think you, you kind of have to separate the, the two issues of whether Allardyce should stay and whether Bilic was the right man. I think that... There was certainly a case for after four years of saying goodbye to Allardyce. I think that his critics would point to the fact that he picked up something like three wins from his last 20 or 25 games. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the crowd was never really with him, which always meant that the, the atmosphere was, was always on the verge of turning after one bad result. Where I think Bilic, as a, as a former player, certainly gets more leeway as someone who supposedly is going to play better football, gets more leeway from the crowd. Um, but then once you've got rid of Allardyce, who at the very least does bring you a certain level of Premier League security, um, they, they have gone and got someone in who had no experience of the league in a season where they, they can't go down. Um, obviously, you never want to go down, but the stakes are somewhat different for West Ham, given that they move into the Olympic Stadium next um, next summer. And just imagine the, the PR disaster if they open that up next season playing in the championship <laughs> you know has, uh, has the the west ham love affair with slavin bilich been sort of overstated at all i mean you know he, he does seem to be a popular figure with west ham fans but i mean i look back at he played for them for for about five minutes in the mid-90s why, why is he yeah. such a popular figure well i think the, the bilich is a charismatic guy um I, I mean if you if you take allardyce he, he had a certain uh, uh how to put a, a certain belligerence to him, which made him quite hard to warm to. I think the players like him, but whereas with Bilic, I think that you know he, he is very good with the press. I think that he was always uh, the word out of Turkey that he was always very good at getting on side with Besiktas fans, and you know they, they they saw him as a legend when he left. Um, and so you know West Ham, he was kind of a, I think he was a popular figure while he was there. I think maybe memories could be a little bit short when he when he left. He was actually left under really bad circumstances. Uh, and he sort of forced through a move to. Everton after, as you say, about playing there for about a season and a half. Uh, when he came back, I, I'm, I'm too young to, to have been there, but older fans will say that you know there were fake pound notes were you know thrown at him or directed at him when when he came back with Everton. So at the time, he was certainly not a popular figure when he left. But I guess you know the, the longer it goes on, I think people start to forget, and perhaps when you're a foreign player, there's a little bit more forgiveness than you know, if it's a, a local kid, say like Lampard, for example. Um, 
is acting in that way, perhaps. Um, you, you, I mean, you mentioned the move to the Olympic Stadium and why that raises the stakes so much. But can you explain why it is that it, that it does raise the stakes so much? Because surely moving to that stadium for West Ham is um, is just a positive, whatever way you look at it. Uh, even if they do, I mean, if they getting relegated would obviously be, be terrible for a lot of the familiar reasons. I mean, most obviously the TV money, but but why would it be particularly bad given that they have to move into the stadium? Well, they get crowds of 35,000 at the moment, Upton Park, and generally they sell out, but I think there has to be quite a push to sell the games out at the moment. Um, they're often, you, you know, kind of offers like kids for a quid. Uh, it's not like, you know, the Emirates where there's a huge waiting list for season tickets. Um, if you're in the championship, then filling a 54,000 stadium is, is going to be difficult. Uh, and it's just as well, I think it's the, the whole PR of, of the fact that they're moving in. It's supposed to be a brave new era. Uh, <laughs> and if they if they were to go in there in the in the championship, when you know the the overall aim is to lift West Ham to another level of you know being able to challenge the likes of Spurs and Arsenal on a more competitive basis with a with a bigger stadium. If you were to start the era there in the um, in the championship, it just it, it would not be the the uh, vision that people had, uh, had uh, put forward um so obviously i think you can kind of you can kind of see it coming uh, it's, it, as i say it's almost it's almost too obvious an ending for them to sack allardyce in the season uh, before they move and then to go down um but the way the way they played on on saturday against bournemouth uh, was not a side that could have any illusions over the, the task that faces them i think if they if they continue in that manner then they're going to be in big trouble what about the stadium itself, Jacob? I mean, I saw um, Karen Brady. Karen Brady's been kind of publicising and giving people tours and this sort of thing. Um, she, uh, I, mean, I mean, what kind of changes though, have they actually made to the stadium? I, I don't know if you've been in it or if you have had a chance to see what kind of work they're they're doing. But, right now, I, so I beg your pardon. I can see it right now because I'm, I'm looking at it. Um, well, from, so how is it different? Am, but, um, people I people mean, were concerned that it was going to be really unsuitable for football because uh, it's you know it's this big uh, ball of a stadium with a big sort of spacious running track, and it seems like the pitch is miles away and all that. What have West Ham done to? Well, they'll, they'll move it. They'll move it close. I mean, they are going to move it closer. So hopefully, the the, the the view, the pictures that have been put out would suggest that the um, that the view is is not going to be as as bad as was made out and. And uh, I mean, I've, I've been in a stadium with a running track, and it is it is a very strange experience when you're watching football. Um, but I think from the pictures so far, you can see that the, the views are quite good. Um, it's it's going to be a huge change. I mean, Upton Park is just that you know it's, an, it's an, a famous old ground, and um, you know this is kind of it's going to be difficult for them to sort of to have the identity in there. That, that Upton Park gave them, and you know, I think you've seen that with a lot of teams who've moved stadiums. I think you know when Southampton moved to the St Marys, it was really hard for them, from the Dell. It was really hard for them to get to grips with it. I think it took a while for them to win their first game when they moved there. Um, West Ham, I mean, they're pushing, they're trying to make it as West Ham branded as possible to make it feel like home. But it's going to be hard for it to feel like home. There'll be people who've been going to Upton Park for years um, who will sort of move into this. What you know, it's one of these stadiums that kind of looks like it's about to take off and go into space uh, at the moment. Um, it's you know, it's very modern and um, and, and you know, shiny and expensive and everything. Uh, but making it making it feel like a football stadium will be a will be hard for them. Um, and so again, that, that that presents a different challenge. I mean, even 
you know, once they move in, it's it's not as if everything will magically be okay. Once once that happens as well, it's going to be a a different task then to to settle into the place. I think. All right, Jacob Steinberg, we'll leave it there. Brilliant. Thanks a million. Okay. Thank you. Cheers. You truly do sound unconvinced about Slavin Bilic. As does Jacob, it must be said. Well, I mean, it's not really a question of... Uh, I mean, the problem for Slav- the problem I think that Slavin Bilic has is that he is coming after a manager who is like a byword for uh, sort of dour competence. You know, in the- did you see Sam Allardyce talking about the Man City game? No. Oh, he, was on, he was on TV yesterday, you know. I think, I'm pretty sure it was Sky. I think it was Sky. He was there... Uh, I mean, I, I like Sam Allardyce. I find him quite a endearing character. The West Ham fans didn't like him. That okay? I, I his his football teams aren't necessarily that exciting. He's he's a bit of a no nonsense merchant. You so. interviewed him before. I remember face to face. Yeah, Dublin, and I thought it went well. He came across very well. Yeah, he did. He, he's he's a nice guy. Like you know, he's 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 an interesting man. Uh, but he he was there talking about the. I mean, he he obviously has a reputation. I would say deserved for maybe sometimes being a bit egotistical. You know, he sometimes... He, I think he feels that the world hasn't really given him enough credit. Therefore, he has to be sure that he's not going to make the same mistake, yeah. you know? But uh, he was there. They were saying, man, oh, Man City look great. Sam, don't they? they look fantastic. He goes, oh, they look magic. They look magic. And talk, he's talking about the magician, David Silva. But then he went, but also, you know clean sheets and he literally he was he almost was licking literally licking his lips at the thought of these clean sheets that the, the Man City were getting you know don't underestimate don't underestimate that part of the game <laughs> clean sheets and, and I thought yeah, he really loves that he really loves the defensive side of the game now he's a guy who has uh, his teams have constantly been you know teams have let him go Bolton you know eventually not long afterwards went down Bolton clung on for a bit actually come to think of it Bolton clung on for a bit. Newcastle got rid of him, didn't like him, went down, went down soon afterwards. West Ham, is it going to be the same story? Like, Bilic is obviously a more charming kind of character. I mean, he does, he basically, which seems to be essentially because he kind of says everything with this little half smirk. So no one's quite sure. Everyone kind of thinks, oh, you know, he seems, he seems quite relaxed. Um, he plays in a band. He's got outside. He's got an earring and he smokes cigarettes, which, which is pretty cool. I mean, the guy's practically James Dean. You know what I mean? But, like, is he necessarily as good at Sam Allardyce is as, you know, at sort of keeping goals conceded down to a manageable level? Uh, I don't know. Um, and I didn't... Uh, the fact that he took off a defender after 37 minutes, that's never never a good sign when it happens. Then he's talking afterwards about the individual mistakes. I already wondered if there was maybe a bit of, bit of finger-pointing going on there from the manager, which isn't a good sign after three games. A uh, fresh new edition of the podcast is out now in which we ask the question, if Usain Bolt ever got done for doping, would it be the end of athletics? In fact, there's an even more specific one. Would it be an even bigger scandal than Ben Johnson in Seoul? Ken reckons it would. No, what would it, What did you reckon? No. No, you, you're be. still, you're, you don't think anything could Anyway, not that there's any questions about Usain Bolt. We're not on the verge of cracking the biggest story in world sport today, but uh, just in <laughs> case there was something ever to happen in the future, we, we, we thought we'd have a hypothetical debate. Nothing stirs people quite like hypothetical debates, I'm sure. John Bruin is ready to chat about Chelsea's win at the weekend. John, but first things first, we mentioned this sort of love between Jose Mourinho and Tony Pulis, as evidenced by their rather awkward uh, interaction. Um, what's, what is it, what's going on here? What, what is it about Tony Pulis thing that Mourinho admires so much? I think it's because Tony Pulis is, these days, the ultimate football man. 
he's someone held in very high respect by his fellow managers and also Jose Mourinho himself sees himself as a bit of an elder of the I suppose the league managers association so they see each other as if not equals people fighting the same fights um, Pulis is somebody who has a lot of friends in football a lot of friends I mean very close to Harry Redknapp um, and in Sir Alex Ferguson's book he actually thanks um, Tony Pulis for his friendship so yeah I think Pulis is a bit of a godfather figure and uh, Mourinho sees himself as similar so that they have something in common. Uh, they, one thing they don't have in common at the moment anyway is the attitude to the transfer window uh, because while the fact that it's open uh, into the start of the season has helped out Jose Mourinho, uh, Tony Pulis is absolutely furious about it. This was the thing that he spent uh, most of his, his remarks after the game complaining about. What's going on with uh, Berahino? truth of that is that Berahino is likely to go to Tottenham once Tottenham pay the price that uh, Jeremy Peace, West Brom's chairman, wants for him. Um, Pulis was saying that he couldn't pick Berahino because he wasn't fit, because uh, his mind was not ready, he wasn't fit in the, in the head to play the game. But um, Pulis seems most annoyed by the transfer window. I mean, he actually closed it where someone asked if he, if he was going to buy anybody and he just says, well, you're asking about the transfer window again, aren't you? And I just walked out of the room. So it's not a topic of discussion. I sense a bit of frustration there. You actually look at West Brom's lineup from last season. I mean, obviously, uh, Rondon made his debut yesterday. Uh, it was very good, very good for them. Uh, he signed Ricky Lambert. And um, there's not much else besides that they've actually added over the summer. And I think he's frustrated. He's not been able to get deals done. And then he's got his, one of his best players who's wanted by another club. It seems to be a common complaint at the moment. A lot of managers are complaining about the fact the transfer window is open until it's four games into the season this time. I think previously it was three. So it's becoming a big issue for, for, for Pulis in particular. And uh, he was unusually ratty yesterday. Unusually ratty. Yeah, I'm pretty sure uh, Mourinho's had a problem with this in the past as well. Has talked about the transfer window. A lot of managers seem to think that just the business should be done before the season starts. But it's worked out well for him this time in that he's gotten Pedro in the last week, makes his debut, and looks like he could make a fairly telling contribution this, this season. John, I want you to base your entire uh, opinion here on the one game you've seen Pedro play for Chelsea. Yeah, the 84 minutes that yeah. I've seen him play. Yeah, well, he added... Um, the type of zest that Chelsea have perhaps lacked a little this season. Um, uh, yeah, I think it was Oscar, really, that made way for him. And uh, William seems undroppable by Jose Mourinho. But, um, yeah, the thing is, the, the type of runs that he made for the first goal and for the second goal that he set up for Diego Costa, they're the type of things that you can't help but watch that and think, why did Manchester United not pay that, that full release clause? That's the type of play that they were missing against Newcastle on Sunday, on Saturday. Sorry, he is a, a, a class player, and, and I think you could see how much Mourinho trusts him in the fact that he played him from the very start. Him being in England, a matter of days, whereas previous signings that he's made, like Juan Cuadrado, like Mohamed Salah, he's put them in for those ten-minute spells that he says he can decide when a player is good or bad. And uh, those two players disappeared without trace, really. I mean, Cuadrado, I think, is going to go to Juventus. But Pedro already looks and looked 
as if he would be part of the team and has made them better as an attacking unit and a good buy and a good buy that in my mind Manchester United should have made. Yeah, we'll get to that, but you mentioned Quadrado there. I mean, this is just so weird, what's happened with that guy, because he comes in, the, the transfer fee was a big transfer fee. It was 26 or 27 million, I think, that Chelsea paid for him. And he's completely disappeared there. And now he's going to go to Juventus, who were in the Champions League final last year. It's not as though Juventus are, 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 are some little team that he's being packed off to, you know, to, to live out his days in shame. Why is it that Juventus reckon they can use this guy that Jose Mourinho doesn't think is worth you know, any minutes in his team. What has happened with that? It's, it's bizarre. I mean, the, the thing I would say is that when I've seen Quadrado play for Chelsea, he really has looked overawed by it, looked completely unsuited to the Mourinho system. And the first thing that any Mourinho player has to do is defend. And he doesn't really seem capable of it. And he doesn't have the muscle of somebody like Willian, a player that, when he was brought in in January, you thought he was going to replace him. You thought Quadrado's... Uh, you know, a great performer in the in the um, World Cup and done so well for Fiorentina, and then suddenly he's come in, and again he was given just those ten minute spells. I remember seeing him play, I think in that FA Cup game against Bradford that they lost, just not just not at a Chelsea level, and uh, like like Mohamed Salah actually, it looks to me like Mourinho made his mind up early with him. Juventus uh, obviously wants him because he's a player that's performed very well in Serie A. They'd be probably getting him at a price and a loan. It's a good deal for Juventus. He, he is a good player. He just didn't fit in at Chelsea. Are we any clearer, just to go back to Pedro, as to why the Manchester United move didn't happen? There is a suggestion from Pedro's agent that they fell asleep uh, at some point. Is it any clearer now that it does settle on it? Well, I, 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 think, I think there might have to be questions raised about some of uh, Ed Woodward's dealing where... They do seem to haggle over price an awful lot when uh, the player is there to be to be signed at a certain price. Let's remember, of course, that Pedro's release clause was significantly lowered anyway because it was you know, agreed that he could leave the club if he wanted to. Yet they messed about with it. Now there's a lot of cover stories about how the fact that he was in uh, Barcelona for other business um, and you know the things like this Neymar thing that. Maybe Manchester United only want a superstar forward, which is a thing that Van Gaal said at the weekend. But it looks to me like the the accusation of them dropping the ball, it has to be made against them. It has to be made. And you can't tell me, or you can't tell, I imagine, many Manchester United fans that Pedro would not make a difference to a team that are playing as if they've got lead in the boots. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the refusal to pay the money for Pedro is very strange considering kind of how much money is changing. I mean, it's less, it's less, his, his release clause in Sterling was £4 million less than Adam Lallana cost Liverpool last season. You know, I mean, it's not, a, it's not a big amount of money for a Premier League player. And this is the club, Manchester United, which apparently, um, according to what we, you know, when we compare what's said in the German press <clears throat> and in the English press, <clears throat> excuse me, about the Bastian Schweinsteiger deal, uh, the price that they claimed to have paid for him was... It was hugely exaggerated. In fact, they only paid about £6 million for Schweinsteiger, but were apparently keen to make people think that they paid more for him for some reason. Yes, yes. At this point, you begin to wonder uh, if, if, if the influence of the Glazer family is involved there. You know, the, their owners who uh, have, made, have made good money from Manchester United from 
cutting their cloth accordingly. Um, and maybe they were trying to haggle over two or three million over the Pedro deal because then it looks a good deal. Maybe Edward would just set targets by his uh, his managers, his, his the owners, that to say, well, if you can get these deals done at a lesser lesser than the price offered, then you know that's the way to do it, and that's part of his remit is, is negotiating the transfers. But it does seem to have caught them out. And I mean, if you actually look. Some of the other deals they've got done, I mean, Luke Shaw was over £30 million. that's going to cost them eventually. Ander Herrera, a year ago, they had to go and pay that release clause that they'd refused to pay before. Um, it sometimes looks a false economy to me, and it certainly does in the case of Pedro. Uh, it does leave them now with a, with about a week um, to go before they, you know, they can't sign anyone. And I, I get the sense that uh, after the four games so far, I mean, none of which they've actually lost, but they have maybe struggled to score, to create scoring chances, um, that there is definitely a kind of a hunger to see them use some of the money that they're ceaselessly bragging about having these days and uh, uh, and end up with a sort of a forward line that's more becoming of, you know, the second richest club in the world, about to boot Real Madrid off the top of the, you know, the rich list. Uh, you know, why is a club that's, you know, about to boot Real Madrid off the top of the rich list fielding uh, a forward line, which is, you know, um, kids, you know, guys who might be world class in a couple of years uh, and guys who maybe are on, on the way down a little bit? Well, I think that the explanation from Manchester United's end is that they can't find the players to fit their needs. And there does seem to be a problem with landing strikers at the moment. I mean, the best strikers... You know, it's universally acknowledged these days of South American and maybe Manchester United have had their fingers burnt a little bit with the odd South American purchase. Um, the player that you know, most clubs would cover would be Real Madrid's Karen Benzema, who seems unbuyable. But the, the, the time before that United require, the time before that Rooney can go back to playing as a number 10 behind, I mean, on Saturday he looked much happier in that brief spell where he's playing behind Javier Hernandez, they, they, they don't seem to be available. And then there's this other thing about Manchester United at the moment, which is this superstar thing, uh, this sort of Ed Woodward goes Hollywood thing where they want to buy a player who is good for the marketing of the club with their various you know, myriad sponsors that they've got around the world um, that want to be attached to a name like Neymar, the one that's been linked over the weekend, which... Um, I believe, from what from reading into it, probably Neymar's people would consider going to Manchester United good for the marketability. But I can't see that deal getting done in a week. If you recall how big the deal was when he moved from Santos to Barcelona, it would seem almost impossible. Gareth Bale is a name that I'm sure we are going to hear floated in this next week. Uh, again, another very difficult deal to get done. Um, they seem to be leaving things to the last minute. And Zlatan I mean, as well, John. There's another one. Uh, Paul Scholes reckons they should sign Zlatan. Well, yeah, I, you know, I, I'd be quite. I think Zlatan for Manchester United would be fun, and that's <laughs> you know, and it, it's. I think I think the deal is not he's going to be free. Uh, he's free, but they've got to pay the wages, which is obviously very big. Um, Zlatan and Van Hal would be fun, um, but you know, at the moment, the thing about Manchester United is that they lack they lack a sort of certain star quality. They're a very functional team. They're a difficult team to beat at the moment. But this is Manchester United. It is a Hollywood type of team. Maybe someone like Zlatan would be good. And as I said, it would be fun. It would be a laugh. There doesn't seem to be much of that type of thing around Manchester United. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's good enough for the time being. All right, John, brilliant. Thank you. Cheers, lads.
would it also be sensible, Ken, as well as being fun, Zlatan going to Manchester United? I think so. It's... I mean, it depends on a couple of things. But no, I think, I think definitely yes. Because I think, what, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Maybe 20 games? I mean, how many games do they actually need out of the guy? You're talking about uh, maybe a year. Um, Zlatan is going to be 34 during this season. That's old for a striker. You know what I mean? Manchester United have signed strikers at that age before. I'm thinking of Henrik Larsson. Mm. You know, Henrik Larsson, um, maybe was he even older when he, when he played for Manchester United briefly? Um, Big difference there in ego, though. Yeah. You know, Henrik Larsson's the guy who will happily come along, chip in. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't be. I'm, I think Henrik Larsson always knew how good he was and did a great job of, of getting the most out of his talent. But he also went from being a top dog at Celtic to Barcelona, where he had to... Graham Hunter said he had to pretty much learn all over again. He just had to play a totally different style of football, but was willing to do that because he realised, listen, I'm a cog in this big machine, and he ends up helping them win the Champions League. Zlatan is a dominant personality, a guy who's going to want to be the leader in the dressing room. I mean, mm. a lot of us have read his book at this stage. Yeah. I don't think even late in his career he'll be happy to just sit there and take, and, and not be the central figure. Yeah, th- maybe. I mean, um, they are both Swedish. Is What about Swedishness? <laughs> now, I mean, the, well, you, I think what you're saying is true. I mean, Zlatan would want to come in and be a leader in the dressing room. Would that be a bad thing? <laughs> yeah, for Manchester United at the moment? Yeah. I don't think it would. Yeah. I mean, Zlatan is a player who has... Who has achieved such a high level and such a high level of consistency over the last few years. And it's, it's everyone, you know, there's, there's still plenty of people who say, oh, well, Zlatan's scoring record in the Champions League is not that good. And, oh, Zlatan, Zlatan uh, has never really uh, done it against England, English teams or whatever, apart from that time he scored four goals against England, you know. Oh, that was only friendly. There's, there's people who will have a go at Zlatan. But right now, I'll tell you, Manchester United don't have anyone who has a good scoring record in the Champions League. They don't. Really? What's Rooney's scoring record? How impressive is it, really? I mean, he's been in the Champions League all the time. You know, he's he's been in the Champions League consistently every season. But when has he really made a big? I don't think he's ever scored more than five goals in it. Mm. I'm not 100 percent sure. Maybe I'm maybe I'm incorrect about that. But it's 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 not an outstanding record. You know what I mean? He's had a couple of good nights against Italian teams. Well, so has Zlatan. You know, Zlatan's had plenty of good nights against Italian teams. He didn't manage to cut it to Barcelona. There's quite a lot of players who don't do that. There were, there were reasons for it. I think for a, for a season, even if you're talking about, can Zlatan knock another 20, 25 games out of himself? For, uh, you know, as John was saying, signing one of free, I think it's an, actually a no-brainer. If you heard any of our shows from San Francisco a little earlier in the year, we had it over there in May for a week or so, you might have thought that was just a one-off, that trip, but no. That was only a jumping-off point to a tour that we're hoping will match the Guns N' Roses Use Your Illusion Tour mm. for both its epic breath. Well, mainly it's just its epic breath. 194 shows in 27 countries. Can I look this up? Over two and a half years. They started in January 1991, Guns N' Roses. Went on through to summer 1993. How long after that did they break up? I, I was thinking that there's probably a reason these guys stopped getting along at some point in the mm. early 90s. That, spending that much time with Axl Rose might get a little bit... Uh, Annoying. Axel needs a bit of space. We will be going on uh, ourselves two more legs anyway of the hashtag PBezo World Tour in the not too distant future. But as of yet, the destinations haven't been confirmed and it's not too late, PBezo, to get, get involved, get us to come to your country. You have to go a long way to match the welcome we got from the PBezoers in San Francisco, but I'm sure you can do it. Let us know if you want us to broadcast a live show from wherever you are based these days. London and New York are leading the way at the moment. You can contact us on Twitter at Second Captains and 
we'll see if we can come to wherever you are. It would be our pleasure. Uh, thanks very much, Ken. Thank you too, Owen. Thanks very much for listening. I do have a listen to the other podcast we put out today. I think I mentioned the Usain Bolt angle to it. We also talked a lot about the, the weekend's Gaelic football. A pretty good win for Kerry. In the meantime, take care. Thank you. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 